Jesus does this one last time. And it actually says, and no one dared after that ask him any more questions. Because Jesus has just demonstrated that he knows the scriptures so well that if you come to him and ask him a question in order to test him, he's going to turn back a question to you and make it clear that you don't know it. Welcome to Act in Line a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. We are living in the age of deconstruction. We are constantly bombarded online, in schools, and sometimes even in our homes by attitudes and arguments aimed at deconstructing our faith. Through this, do we know what it means to question well? Faith is not the sort of thing that endures so long as our eyes are closed. The opposite is the case. Faith helps us see. And that means not shrinking from the ambiguities and the difficulties that provoke our most profound questions. Professor Matthew Lee Anderson says we need not fear questions. By the grace of God, we have the safety and security to rush headlong into them and find ourselves better for it on the other side. In this episode, Professor Anderson joins Acton Director of Programs and Education, Dan Churchwell, to discuss his latest book, Called Into Questions, Cultivating the Love of Learning Within the Life of Faith. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We are joined today on Act in Line by Matthew Lee Anderson, Assistant Research Professor of Ethics and Theology at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion. Anderson is an associate fellow at the McDonald Center for Theology, Ethics, and Public Life at Oxford University, where he completed a D.Phil in Christian ethics. He's listed among Christianity Today's 33 Under 33 list of younger evangelical leaders and co-hosts Mere Fidelity, a podcast on faith, theology, and ethics. In 2005, he founded Mere Orthodoxy, a web-based magazine that provides commentary on matters of religion, politics, and culture from a broadly conservative evangelical standpoint. He is the author of three books, and his most recent, Called Into Questions, will be the subject matter for today's episode. Well, Matt, thank you for joining Act in Line. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Uh, it's a delight to see your uh, brand new book, Called Into Questions, uh, Almost uh, ten or 11 years ago, I think, I picked up a, a copy of your book, The End of Our Exploring, which I, I think this is kind of a, a, either a sequel or you know, an, an addition to. So, so tell me, why, why the updated version um, of The End of Our Exploring? Uh, because I'm old <laughs> and I have different thoughts now than I had then. I'm a Love better it. writer. Uh, the, the end of our exploring was a fine book for someone who was youthful and energetic and 
had a pro style that was saccharine and sloppy and syrupy. But, you know, when I became a man, I did away with childish things, Dan, you know, so you got to you got to rewrite the book and write it in the way in which you are at this age. So, I mean, that's that's all very cheeky, but it's it was interesting to me, you know, it was a decade ago when people were talking about doubt and how awesome doubt yep. is and how great it is. And I wrote the end of our exploring, exploring, responding to that. Now everyone's deconstructing and, or panicked about deconstructing. And I thought, well, you know, I, I kind of already wrote that book. And I said a lot of things that would apply to the quote deconstruction conversation. So maybe I'll just update that for a new audience. Um, but it turned out to be actually a much more substantive rewrite than I expected. I think of this as a different book. It, it, and, it, and as I worked my way through it, it does seem that it is. That there's like echoes back to the other one, but but it is is really a, a great update. Um, and and I'm going to get to the deconstructing, I think, a little later, you know, the, how you end the book. But tell me, you know, it, I mean... We've all heard if you've had any kind of intro to philosophy class or, you know, the unexamined life is unworth living, you know, the, these kinds of phrases. Um, what what about questioning? I mean, this obviously has been like an 11-year idea or longer. What got you into this mode of thinking? It was actually my undergraduate experience. You know, I had a terrific time as an undergrad at Torrey Honors College at Biola University. Uh, it was an all-discussion program. So I spent something like a 1,000 hours between my undergrad and the first couple of years after college asking questions, being asked questions by my peers. And at some point, you start to think, like, what are we doing here? How, like, what is this thing, this question? What, like, how are we relating to the world through this means? And you start thinking, oh, maybe there's a better and worse way to do this. Maybe there are certain types of questions that would be more effective than other types of questions. And then once you start teaching in this way, you really start thinking about questions because you're not only asking students questions, but I think more fundamentally, more importantly, you're trying to get students to ask their own questions. And so you're trying to think of ways to waken them to the intellectual life, which is its own really hard challenge. Uh, so, you know, you put all that together and you think, well, questioning, it's, it's, it's weird. It's a distinct mode of relationship to a subject. It's not quite doubt. It's not quite uncertainty. It's its own thing. Uh, and I've been just long fascinated by what that posture is and how to cultivate it, not only in my own life, but in the lives of my students and others. Yeah, um, the the person that you know wrote your foreword, Doctor Doctor Fred Sanders, he talks about this as kind of a theological anthropology. Yeah, and you know, I would when I would have first approached it, I would think of it as kind of um, epistemology, or you know, you know, I mean, there, yeah. there's a way of thinking it, you know, how um, and it's just laced with religious. In engagement, integration, right? You know, from the biblical text to theology, church fathers, and and I, and I loved that about this updated, you know, work. Um, what? How do you parse it? You know, is, is this theology? Is you know, is this anthropology? Is this epistemology? You know, what what what's what are we swimming in? Yeah, it's something like all of the above, I think. So my formal discipline, my academic discipline, is theological ethics. And the reason I do ethics is because I'm really interested in how we should live in this world. But to answer that question, you have to have resources from theological anthropology, theology proper. 
And that's based on your reading of scripture. And I think it also involves attentiveness to previous generations and how they have understood the world. And so theological ethics, from my standpoint, is a discipline where you can bring in effectively every other body of knowledge in order to try to answer how should we live now. And so when I think about this book, I think I'm, I am doing a lot of, I'm, I'm invoking a lot of different disciplines and, and bodies of literature to try to answer that question. But it is, I am trying to think primarily theological. I mean, at the heart of the, the book in one way is a question about Christians, which is, can we be people who have real questions about God and the world? And how can we be people who have real questions about God and the world? Because you might think like, well, we're Christians, we're answers people, right? What dis distinguishes us from everybody else is that they've got questions, we've got the answers, right? right? And, and I think, well, yeah, in one way. But what might also distinguish us is that we ask questions in particular sorts of ways and that we have a particular set of questions that we are asked by God that we are asked by our tradition. And then we have to learn what those questions are, not just think about what the answers are to all the questions around us. Yeah. Is that what you're getting at when you, you, know, you say people um, should live with an uh, interrogative mode of life? Is that, is that yeah. what you're driving at? Yeah, that's right. It's the interrogative... Inter I can never get that word out. It's terrible for podcasts. It's a, I, I'm, I'm impressed at how easily that rolled off your tongue. The interrogative mode of life is a mode of life in which we are open. So one of the images that I develop early on is poverty. If we think about being poor in spirit, we think, well, we have a lack there. We have a need. And intellectually, we might frame that as we have a question. To ask a question is to recognize that there is something out there, there's an answer, and that you don't have it. And to really earnestly, deeply ask the question is to have some practical stake in what that answer is and to really need an answer. And so questioning as a mode of life is, in one respect, I think, an intellectual form of poverty. It's the way in which we are poor in spirit towards God within our, intellect, within our intellects. And I think that it's a helpful way for me to think about how to live a questioning life because I want to be routinely, regularly coming up with, coming up against my limits in terms of what I know and experiencing that sense of poverty mm -hmm. and awaiting independence upon God for the revelation of answers that I really need to live well. Uh, I think, I think that's a good, it's a good model, which is, you know, the interrogative mode. We, we live questionly toward the world. Yeah. Before I was a, um, before I came to act in almost eight years ago, I was I was a professor in Christian two different Christian colleges, and one of the colleges I had the chance to teach almost twenty sections of Introduction to Philosophy over my career. Mm -hmm. And after about one or two sections, I started to see a trend, and so I rewrote my opening lecture, and I, I called it, you know, won't the study of philosophy make me lose my soul? Because I had so many students coming back after the class got over and say, you know, this is not at all how philosophy was represented to me growing up. Or in, and these were predominantly churched kids, um, evangelical kids from a, a, a broad uh, variety of evangelical churches. And, you know, some of them would, you know, I was taught that curiosity is a vice 
or the, these kinds of things? You know, what? How would you answer? You know, if somebody came to you and said, "Well, isn't curiosity a vice?" I I would say it might be actually like one of the one of the great paradoxes of the Christian tradition is that classically there is a vice that is called curiositas. Right now, I use the fancy Latin for it because I want to, in one respect, distinguish that vice from asking questions. But curiositas as a as a vice is a deformation or a malformation of the intellect in which we try to ask questions that we ought not ask. We try to get answers that we ought not have answers. And we try to relate to knowledge in ways that we ought not relate to knowledge. We, we aim for, for instance, novelty for its own sake. Oh, I learned something new and that's just amazing. And that's, it's less about the truth and it's more about being first to knowing something, or we relate to knowledge in a way where we strive for comprehensivity, right? We want to encompass everything that can be known. Uh, and that's a peculiarly modern way to relate to knowledge, right? I think it's actually not an accident that the Mars explorers have been named curiosity, <laughs> right? There's right. a sense within that, that we're trying to encompass the cosmos with our knowledge to uh, learn everything that's possible to be learned about it. And there's a certain respect in which that could be okay, but there's also a way in which that's vicious. That's really bad. So there's a certain respect, which I think, I, you know, the, the people who come who have sort of nervousness about philosophy, I want to say, yeah, I think there's aspects of what you're nervous about that that are right. There are critiques that the Christian Christian tradition has against philosophy. But Christians have always asked their own questions. And there's no escaping that we ha have asked our own questions in distinctly Christian ways. And that even once we get the revelation from God of who he is in Jesus Christ, that we continue to go on asking questions, not only within that framework, but in frameworks where we're sort of momentarily thinking about the world as though Christ hadn't become incarnate, we, that we do philosophy, real philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, the, the, that those modes of thinking persist within Christian tradition and are appropriate for Christians to undertake today. So, you know, I, I feel some of the tensions. I don't want to just say, no to those students who think, oh, philosophy is bad. I think, oh, there's ways in which it can be. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even Augustine, you know, in Confessions, you know, he intimates that some, there are some lines of inquiry that can just lead to, uh, I don't know how you, you described it, but like like factoid, just learning something to yeah. know it, just purient, you know, interest, that kind of thing. Um, but you know, you you bring a lot of in the first uh, third of the book or so that you you engage Jesus as questioner. Mm -hmm. What what do you think about that angle? You know, I mean, it's, it's a unique angle to come to. And, and as soon as you start pointing out all the scriptures where questioning is just a part of his his mode, um, how, how did that shape how you um, wrote the book? Yeah. So here's my true confession. The first draft didn't have very much Jesus in it. Oh. Um, it was, it's really scandalous. And it, this was pointed out to me by a friend who read the draft who said, you know, you actually don't have a lot from Jesus directly. You have a lot of people asking Jesus questions, but not a whole lot about Jesus asking questions. And, and that was, that was 
shocking to me because um, I thought that I had covered those bases, but it didn't come through at all. And going back and in rewriting that and figuring out like, how is Jesus doing using questions? You know, it's, it's all really interesting. He is a masterful questioner and a lot of his questions are some of his most important questions are very simple and direct and very poignant as a result. Who do you say that I am as a question, right? To, to Peter, it's just a haunting question. It's the sort of question that we all have to answer in some respect. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a question that's very much on point. A lot of his questions come in these rhetorical contexts where they're meant to draw his audience in and along with what he's saying. They're sort of hypothetical questions. The Sermon on the Mount, for instance, is full of questions, yeah. but it's a sermon, right? He's not directly engaging in these uh, questions of the people. But then there's also like Jesus as the ultimate questioner. Like one of the things that really impressed me about the gospels was the way in which Jesus, like in the gospel of Matthew, will engage in what I would call questioning jujitsu with some of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they'll, you know, and this is a very rabbinic practice. So mm -hmm. this isn't them, you know, the rabbis doing anything illicit or illegitimate with Jesus. It's just, they're testing him. They're trying to figure out, does Jesus really know the scriptures and the way in which a good rabbi should know the scriptures. Right. And so you have these, these lawyers and these others who come to Jesus who ask these questions in order to test them. And Jesus will often invert those and turn them back on people. And, you know, one of my favorite moments is, I think it's Matthew 22, where Jesus does this one last time. And it actually says, and no one dared after that, ask him any more questions. Because Jesus has just demonstrated that he knows the scriptures so well that if you come to him and ask him a question in order to test him, he's going to turn back a question to you and make it clear that you don't know it as well as he does. Mm -hmm. And so people just opt out of that game. And I think that that's, that's a really interesting dimension of like Jesus as teacher for all the people who are around him and be Jesus as question asker. Yeah. And, and do you find that, um, I mean, do you find that is descriptive or prescriptive? Do you think, you know, as you think through those, you know, hermeneutical questions, is that something we should look at and say, wow, that was a fascinating, you know, he, um, he did these kinds of, you know, question asking reversals. Is that something we should emulate? I, there are contexts in which I think pastors, for instance, should emulate it, right? Like what's what's behind that is not every question is asked in order to gain understanding of the answer, mm. right? And and I think the gospels distinguish between these types of questions. You'll have Matthew, Matthew, you'll have Luke, you'll have, you know, the gospel writers say, ask this question in order to test him, right? And so there's there's a, a a description there that the question is being asked with a particular sort of aim. They really want to find out, is he authoritative? Does he have authority? And I think that pastors, there's lots of context when they get questions that are oriented in that sort of direction or ordinary people, ordinary Christians who have 
friends, relatives, et cetera, who are hostile to the faith will ask gotcha types of questions in order to test how well does this person actually know the, the faith? And those sorts of questions, I think, are, are not really invitations for genuine dialogue. And I think we should think about Jesus's model there, where he's ready with answers and ready to play that sort of game and show, oh, if that's the way you're going to interact with me, I will interact with you and I will show that I really know my stuff. I'll maintain my authority here. Yeah. Um, maybe with the sake of drawing them deeper into real earnest questioning, but certainly for the sake of maintaining authority as a teacher. I think teachers really have to think about how to do that effectively. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that doesn't that come down to motive or some somehow discerning motives of people. You know, is is this is this question legitimate or or are they are they seeking an answer or are they seeking a specified response? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And there's you know, like people are going to say, "Oh, I'm just asking questions," and I want to say, "There's never such a thing as just." asking questions. Questions are always ordered towards some end. They have some sort of reason beneath them. And by just asking questions, people often mean it's a real question and I don't know the answer. And when that's the case, great. You know, like I want to know what the answer is, but there's so many contexts where people are doing things. Like I think about Rob Bell mm -hmm. and the book on hell that he wrote right. a decade ago around the time, right? Like that thing was just pure questions. I don't know. Someone counted the number of questions. It was just like all questions. And you'd say, well, Rob Bell, I'm just asking questions here. And it was just manifestly evident that Rob Bell was not just asking questions, that he was making tacit claims about the Christian teaching about hell in that book and using the questions as a kind of rhetorical dodge to escape the accountability that comes from making those sorts of claims. So I, you know, like I just think there's there's no just questioning. We have to be able to be generous towards one another and not suspect each other's motives, but also recognize that people do ask questions for reasons, and we need to be attentive to what those reasons are and responsive to them. Mm -hmm. Do, do you think there? I mean, obviously, late at the end of the book, you you start talking about communities of inquiry, like where you can engage and who who. I mean, because uh, one of my closest friends, he has a PhD, uh, epistemology, philosophy, and he studied disagreement. That was his like yeah. epistemic disagreement, and in the field, you know, peerhood, like who can disagree with who? Who are epistemic peers? Um, it, do, how, how, you know, how are, I guess the question I'm trying to ask is how are communities of inquiry cultivated that take into account kind of that peerhood? Yeah. I'm not an epistemologist, so I look forward to hearing from your friend how I should think about disagreement, <laughs> but I do, it's, I think it's complicated within the church uh, in terms of how to maintain coherent boundaries, coherent communities where we're asking real questions, where we're preserving space for real disagreement, but we're also really concerned to maintain certain standards of belief and practice, right? Because there are certain 
truth claims, for instance, that the, the church makes that are binding on believers. If you no longer assent to the creed's claim about the Trinity, for instance, right, then you're outside the boundaries of belief of Christian orthodoxy. And that has to have some effect on your participation in the Christian community. If that's really a belief, it's not just a question for you. If it's like, no, I, I really do reject Christian teaching on the Trinity. And so what I, what I try to do is say something like Christians need to be real earnest question askers, right? Like we are the people who ask questions because we have received a very perplexing faith. The contents of the Christian message are deeply confusing. Mm -hmm. Once you start thinking about the mechanics of who God is, how he has redeemed the world, how he became incarnate in Jesus Christ, once you start asking all the how questions, it's really perplexing Christianity, really, really confusing. And so as we are communities who earnestly ask those how questions and really seek to understand them, I think we can have a wide capacity for people who are different stages in their growth and understanding. And so types of disagreement about uh, how we construe some of those issues while still maintaining coherent boundaries and norms on what we believe, that there are actually right and wrong answers there that we have to assent to, even if we don't quite understand how they work out. Did that, I'm not sure that quite answers your question. No, I, I think so. I mean, it, part of it is how do we build those communities of trust where we can have the space to ask those yeah. questions? You know, if somebody is having it, – it's not necessarily wrong. I mean, would you say if somebody has a question about the Trinity? I mean, it's not the easiest kind of doctrine to just get. So there's got to be a certain level of trust if someone has questions about certain, right? I mean, in yeah. in in the church and places for people to explore those. But if I, I think what you're saying, if I hear you right, if, if somebody comes to a point where they say, "Well, I don't believe this," then then there's got to be some sort of agreement on, "Well, that's not a Christian belief." Is is that kind of what yeah. you're saying? Yeah, that's right. And in terms of how we create those sort of communities, I mean, I think so much depends on our leadership and whether they're themselves people who are learning and growing in the Christian faith, right? I think it's very dangerous that pastors become answer people. Mm -hmm. I think it's very dangerous that I'm doing podcasts talking about this book and having answers about questions, right? Because the more we become answers people, the harder it is to sustain our own growth, the harder it is to remember that we are ourselves intellectually poor, that poverty of spirit has to begin in us. And if we have pastors and leaders who are themselves regularly putting themselves in contact with great minds, such they such that they recognize their own intellectual poverty, then they, I think, will ask their own questions and do so genuinely, earnestly, even publicly with others within the, the church in ways that make it clear that one doesn't have to have all the answers to participate in the community. And in fact, that 
questioning as an adult believer, asking questions is, is central to the life of faith. I think about this with catechisms. I was talking with some friends about catechisms for children and the ways in which children are formed. And I think catechizing children is great. Yeah, let's do it. As long as parents are also being catechized, mm -hmm. right? Like if parents are only putting their children through catechism classes or making their children memorize the catechism, but the parents have never memorized a catechism, something has gone very awry, right? Right, uh, Because parents, adults, leaders have to model and embody the intellectual life if we want anyone else to model it. Yep. Um, and I think that that's, it's just really, really crucial that pastors and leaders um, undertake that for mm -hmm. their communities. So I want to, I'm pinging on your, your idea of, you know, we shouldn't be answer people. Um, help me understand, you know, there are a lot of people that hear this, they, they want uh, it, it seems you know there's many ministries with worldview in their names, and you know the answer. Uh, it, it was kind of a '70s, '80s, '90s thing, but they're they're still around. You know uh, the idea of having answers. You know you you use the phrase intellectual poverty. You you have a section in the book on humility. H how does that? Um, I mean, what, what culturally, especially in evangelicalism, both uh, you and I both come from that tradition, how how has that, you know, trying to be seen as answer people harmed the life of faith in, in the modern context of American evangelicalism? Yeah. You know, it is strange because I like answers. And I think that we are, again, I really want to say, like, we have real boundaries that we really have have up. But there's a kind of brittleness or anxiety that exists within seeking answers and seeking to have answers to everybody's questions, right? And there's a sense in which it transforms the intellectual life such that you're, you're just not comfortable living with something that is uncertain where you can just say very candidly and freely, yeah, I don't know the answer to that one. And it's a real question for me. And actually I can continue to believe the thing that I believe while still having that as a real question. So becoming answer people, people who are think of ourselves as having answers or think of ourselves as needing the answers in order to sustain our children's faith, I think it's just, it just feels very brittle to me because there's going to be places or points where, for instance, children grow up and they get into a context where they didn't have an answer for something. And if they have never become comfortable with the experience of sitting with a question and that question just being a real question and it being really unknown to us, then when they experience that for the first time, they might implode a little, yeah. right? Like it might not go well for them. And so while we have to have the answers, we also, I think, have to be really deliberate about ensuring we are allowing people to uh, encounter the unknown as the unknown. So would you, would you agree with the idea that it may be living in the question or having some of those questions unanswered is part of a, a strong spiritual formation? I think so. 
Yeah. I think it's gotta be right. So, and one of the, one of the lines I say in my book is, um, there's a question mark at the end of our lives that we're not going to be able to escape, right? Like the more we reflect on death, the more we come up face to face with a gigantic question. Now we have answers about what happens after death. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And I think that I will meet Jesus, but do I actually really understand what that means or do I know how I will be in the moments leading up to my death or what that will be like? No, I don't. Right. Like that's a, those are major questions for me. And insofar as the end of my life, the final hours of my time on this earth to still comprehend, encompass who I am as a person, who I have been, then that question is really, really important. Am I going to meet that unknown with courage and freedom and joy and be comfortable in the face of that un unknown? Or am I going to anxiously resist it because I, I can't handle the uncertainty of what that will be like. I think that that, that moment, uh, it, like if we think about death as a question mark, then we have to see that all of the little questions that we ask along the way are preparations for that hour. Mm -hmm. And if we are not allowing ourselves to be comfortable with question marks, with questions, with the uncertainty, we might actually not be equipping people to die well effectively. Hmm. Yeah, that end of life question is, is that's a fascinating series of thoughts. Um, and you kept using uncertainty, but do you, do you think there's been an idol made out of certainty? Like like Christian, like if if you don't, if the youth pastor doesn't have all the answers, is he responsible for the youth? You know, shouldn't we be certain of our faith? Yeah, and, you know that that way of thinking. I, you know, I think that there is something of an idol that has been made out of about certainty. I certainty seems like a psychological predicate to me. And I really want, like, I think psychological predicates are, are fine. I really think people should aim for confidence. Right? I think confidence is a disposition towards what we believe, right? Like I can be wrong, but I really do trust that. I understand what's happening here and that it's right. Am I certain? No, absolutely not. There's obviously ways in which I could go wrong, but I have a high degree of confidence that it's it's good. And I think that that, that predicate seems much more uh, approachable. It seems like a much better way of framing how we should relate to what we believe than certainty. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And this this goes with you know later in the book you you talk a, a lot about faith um, and having a confident faith you know because a lot of times people you know in the modern secular mind or the mind way it it works now that this idea of faith is blind or faith is you know th there's this element of that faith you know you're, you're talking about questioning but having belief you know having this faith do, do you think belief and or faith excuse me is congruent or, or you know consistent with this idea of asking questions? Can you have a strong? It has to be. Yeah, I mean, it just has to be right. I think that Mary is the model of the Christian questioner. When the angel comes to Mary 
and says, you are going to conceive a son. Mary responds to that word by asking a question. How will these things be? For I have not known a man. That question, how will these things be? Expresses Mary's perfect confidence, her trust that what the angel says is true, that this prediction will come to pass. But Mary has a personal stake in how it comes to pass. She needs to understand because she's going to give birth and she hasn't known a man. So if she needs to know a man, like if she needs to consummate her union with Joseph, she's got to know that she's got to do that. Um, And so she asks, how? How will this be? And I think that that question is exemplary of a trusting repose in the word of God as true as reliable, but also a deep personal interest in understanding what's been given to her and and a concern for clarity in that way. Mm-hmm. My other favorite question is uh, comes from Thomas in the Gospel of John. Um, just a you know, like John 17, we all know John 17, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Like, great verse, Jesus. Really nice. We, you know, one of the first verses probably many Christians have memorized. Right. But it comes in response to Thomas's question. And Thomas's question is just awesome. It's just absolutely one of my favorites. Because Jesus says something like, I'm going away. And you know where I'm going and the way. Like, this is what Jesus says in like 17.4. And Thomas pipes up and says, I don't know where you're going or the way. Where are you going and what's the way? Right? And you can just imagine Thomas looking around the room. Jesus says, you know this. And Thomas is the one student around the room who's like, (laughs) nope. Nope. Maybe I think everyone else might know this, but I don't. And I really need to know this. And so he shoots up his hand and is like, sorry, what's the way? I know you just said that I know it, but I, I'm a dummy. I don't actually know the way. Yeah. And that's what Jesus responds to in saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That courage to ask the very blunt, bold question to say like, yeah, you just said that I know something, but I don't. That seems like the sort of question that Christians can ask, right? Like we get this deposit of faith. Jesus died for our sins. Yeah, great. I believe that. What? (laughs) Like, what does that mean? Mm How does that work? Uh, Those are the sort of questions I think Christians have to be able to ask. And and do you think that stems from the, you know, the, uh, the New Testament alludes a lot to like childlike faith? being a child in the in the approach? Yeah. I mean, children are just, they're, children are wonderful because they do ask these questions with abandon and they don't wait for the right time or place <laughs> or circumstance. So they just ask their questions, right? And we love that about children and we forgive their lack of prudence because they're children. And what I think is there's a childhood into which we grow and that childhood is still marked by a deep delight in asking questions, even if it's married to prudence about the right time and context and place, right? Uh, I don't think we get to be let off the hook 
because we're adults. Uh, um, so, you know, like, yeah, I think we just have to be attentive to all those circumstances, but that, that childlike zeal for understanding we that's yeah. We've so, got to recover that. So what happens to that zeal? I mean, I, I have four kiddos and, you know, they, um, they're getting older now, but our, our youngest is 11. And I mean, we still, when we have the, ch- you know, rare chances to sit around the table and eat. And I mean, the questions are wide ranging. I mean, we, uh, I wish I could remember one from the other night, but it was like thermonuclear war. You know, like, and, and we were talking about war and then it, it moved to something, speaking of catechism, in, in a catechism class, you know, a deep theological question and then something totally, you know, know, junior high boyish. And it, you know, it, it, it seems that as we get older, we, you know, is it, is it loneliness? Do we not, you know, back to that kind of question on how do we cultivate these communities of inquiry? You know, the family is a natural place, a natural community to develop that mm-hmm. hopefully, or, or to put a retardant on, you know, sometimes families aren't the best, you know, they don't have the best model, but hopefully in a good, you know, virtuous family, they can do those kinds of things. But once once we get older, we kind of lose that zeal or, or something saps the energy. What I mean, I, I don't know if I, maybe this is of my own experience, you know, it takes something to get that zeal back. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think there's something about our modern moment that's different, you know, um, that we, we don't like to ask good questions? I don't know how much is different about our modern context. I do think that there are forms of schooling that are not amenable to keeping that zeal alive. But we educate a lot more people these days than have ever been educated in before in human history, right? Um, so it's not clear to me that we can just point to the schooling. It's not clear to me that we could just point to smartphones or TikTok and social media as ways that, or as uh, noises, if you will, mm-hmm. intellectual noises that blunt our curiosity, our our desire for understanding. I kind of think it's been hard in every generation to keep the zeal for learning alive because life can be hard and the demands of paying bills the demands of keeping a roof over our heads, all of those are more urgent in one way than the luxury goods for many people of thinking very, very deeply about the Christian faith. Um, so I, I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to just say this is a modern problem, but that said, I do think that there are lots of insofar as, the modern world has taken the form it has, it it does put unique pressures on questioning. Unique just by virtue of their form. Um, so there's some of the aspects that I named, like social media, like smartphones, like contemporary educational environments, all seem to be geared towards blunting uh, our intellectual lives, removing our opportunities for reflection, internalization, real thought, um, and I think we have to we have to resist those. Yeah, I, I think there's a distinction between you, you say more people have been educated. I, I think more people have gone through the school system, but I yeah. think there's a strong distinction between training and education. That's a different, probably a different podcast. But but the, the idea of asking good questions or who are our models? I mean, when, when you say the mo- you know I, I want to 
press you or ask you a little bit about, you know, you say the smartphones. I know it's a convenient thing to talk about, but it's been less than two decades in which we have transitioned to a point where almost everybody over the age of 12, it seems, has Mm -hmm. a smartphone where they can instantly ask either through text or now verbally, you know, we can, hey, Siri, that. um, What are we thinking about? I mean, do do you think, I mean, anything can, quote unquote, you know, this is the idea, anything can be answered with the device in my pocket. Mm -hmm. So the the layer of authority, like, you know, Mm -hmm. do I need my pastor? Do I need my parent? Do I need, you know, where, you know, usually I, I try to think of who I ask questions of. A lot of times I don't ask questions of people that I don't think can either help or ask, you know, can help me some sort of authority yeah. or some sort of ability to offer an answer, you know, of, of some kind. Um, but now we can do that in our, in our pocket, you know, with our, the device in our pocket. Do you think, do you think that is any th- making it somewhat different than past generations? I think it definitely makes it different. I'm a little bit skeptical that students, for instance, are going to go ask chat GPT for life advice. Yeah. You know, that's this sort of, um, dystopian scenario that I I just kind of don't expect to come about, but I do think that there are certainly pressures that those media bring, and I think it's it's really important to recognize that those pressures are on even those who might, in your sense, have been trained to ask deep questions. So there was an essay on the decline of the humanities that I think the New Yorker published last fall. Yeah, yeah. And there was an eminent Shakespeare scholar who I admire a great deal who said something like, you know, in the past I used to read eight books a month, but now I read two or three and I spend a lot more time reading essays and things on the internet and shorter pieces like that. And I thought, well, that's a problem, right? If our people who have been trained to ask questions in deep ways are now abandoning the means through which they have sought understanding, and those means are being replaced by short form essays and the internet and so on, then the next generation down or two generations down, we will be in a grave crisis because people who have been tasked with remembering forgotten things will have failed in their duties. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I do think that even if it's not the case that people are going to look to Google for authority on certain questions or issues, the the system of knowledge and understanding is so radically changing and disintegrating in part because of the pressure these tools have put on the system. Yeah, it definitely changes the ecology, the the, the media. Yeah. Um, the, the, it's ecological. It, it changes, you know, um, it's been said that, you know, uh, after the printing press, you didn't have Europe plus the printing press. You had a whole new Europe. Because of the changes, mm-hmm. the ecological changes that the printing press unleashed, and 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 I think there's something afoot there, uh, probably again for a different podcast to to talk about some of those things. But I I'm I'm going to quote back to you. You you quote John Asconis from one of his essays in the New Atlantis in your book, yeah. and so you know I'm going to just 
along these same lines, though, you know, aren't the social institutions of our time in such a decline that the picture of reality doesn't really hold? You know, it is back to these, you know, cultivating, are there institutions, are there, who do we trust that we can go ask questions of theological, philosophical, political natures that are serious and robust? You know, if if the mm-hmm. social, um, do you think the social institutions are in, in decline like that? Yeah. 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 Just yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, like it's, 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 it feels bleak to me. And I think, you know, John's essays at the New Atlantis were, I thought, really prescient analysis of the ways in which our relationship to facts have changed and our mm-hmm. relationship to reality has been fragmented by what sort of news silos we find ourselves in. Um, the, from my standpoint, the balkanization of our media consumption and the polarized silos that have risen around that media consumption makes something like questioning even more important as a disposition to have, regardless of whether you can find authorities to go to um being able to recognize where there are real questions and how th- you can still move through this world while thinking that some things are less certain mm-hmm. than they seem uh that seems just really valuable right not having as high a degree of confidence in narratives that we have been given from any media source that we are consuming um but maintaining a, a sense of we have questions and we're interested and we're continuing to read and think about some of these issues. That seems really valuable to me. But it also think I also think like some of these fracturing institutions would be much better off if people just opted out of the news media consumption cycle altogether and started reading old dead, you know, old forgotten books by dead people and started thinking about questions at a level in which the media ecology does not allow us to think about those questions. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, cause I think that's, I think that's what's on the mind of a lot of people, you know, are, are the churches, are, are the families, are the, you know, political apparatus, you know, are, are they there to answer our questions? And it seems in, increasingly fractured, like you said, or, or, um, there's so many different factions now. I mean, sometimes it's just nice to hear from someone who's a, a supposed expert that I don't know. Yeah, it's somebody. You know, it's always it seems to be a posture in 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 modern life. Whether somebody's you know, and they, they try to show all these answers. And this might seem like a strange, silly anecdote, but I, I had spine surgery in late October and. My, you know, spine surgeon, neurologist, you know, neuroscience, um, they're, they're the highest paid doctors, et cetera, you know, and this guy mm-hmm. is pretty intense and he was telling me what he's going to do. And he's like, well, you might need a fusion, you know, when we get in there, we, we not, we might need to put hardware in and, you know, um, because I don't know though. I don't know your MRI, you know, I, you, we need to get in there and see. And even this, you know, these people that evoke, that's why he's like, that's why we call this a practice. And I, I don't know if that was supposed to be, you know, some people might freak out about that because they're about to open you up and, and look at your spine. But he, he, 
it actually calmed me because he's like, I don't know. I need to get in there with my eye and see and, and do. And and I, I just he, – he didn't – I think if he would have just been super confident and say, yeah, we're going to fix all your problems. We know exactly what's going on. And I, and I think people see a lot of experts with that opinion of I know how to do everything mm-hmm. or I have all the answers, whether it's theological, political or what have you. And so I, I, I like to hear somebody say, I don't know. And those experts often present themselves that way. I mean, I think we don't, you know, we don't have to get into all the issues with COVID, but certainly all the right. scientific establishment did itself no favors by declining or by failing to communicate the extent to which questions were still questions yep. uh, about that particular disease and how it was transmitted and so on and so forth, those particular risks. Um you have to make practical judgments when questions are still questions sometimes. You yeah. you know, there are certain risks that you have to mitigate when you don't know. But pre- over-presenting evidence in medical contexts is a real problem. And what you have is people who feel alienated from those contexts who's, who don't quite fit the standard descriptions who end up looking outside of medical contexts for other types of resources. So I think Ross Douthat's book on his own experience of Lyme disease is a really good exploration of the limits of medical knowledge Mm -hmm. or the ways in which medical knowledge gets hardened and how certain people get excluded because it's very hard in an institutional context to have experts who really feel the force of real questions when they are thinking of themselves as technicians, not artists or not investigators, but as technicians whose job it is to fix people. Right. And so when they get a case that can't be fixed in the standard operating procedure, they don't quite know what to do with them. And they ship them off to some other expert in hopes that that expert will will fit them according to the textbook, right? Um, and that's 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 a real problem in medicine more broadly, I think. But it's it's one that applies to all of our many bureaucracies that we live in, where knowledge is fragmented across multiple channels and it's siloed in multiple channels, and that knowledge does not get shared across channels. And so you have experts in one channel who are just technicians, but but we don't have people who can bring all that together and know what the questions are and think creative, creatively about what the answers might be. Yeah. And, and when you think about a lot of experts, usually there are counterfactuals. You know, I mean, if, you, if you're a person of wisdom or you just have a few, you know, a few ways of thinking, you, you can probably come up with a counterfactual to what somebody is, you know, supposedly an expert about. And, and if they only get three, and not even, I about said three minutes, but nobody, hardly anybody gets three minutes on, you know, on the TV or, you know, on, on any clip anymore. So, mm-hmm. um, but where I wanted to end, I mean, that, man, there is so much here, so much good. Uh, this, Matt, I really do think the book is rich. You know, I, I think it's good. You, you could use it in, in a, a church setting, youth group setting, in Bible study, in um, a college setting. I mean, it, it, there's so many ways to use this book. And I, I do want to talk just briefly. I don't know if we're on the tail end. It seems like during the COVID moment, like all the deconstruction language really emerged. And, you know, I know it was around before then, but it it seemed to really, you know, exponentially explode in in 
popularity in their podcasts, etc. And and you you end the book with a, a letter, if you will, you know, the last about deconstruction. What um, what what would you want to say? You know, what, how is your thinking through somebody asking questions? There seems to be a lot of, especially on the evangelical side, people deconstructing from a faith created in an ecosystem of the. 80s and 90s. It's, that, that seems mm-hmm. to be, for some reason, the, the 80s and 90s evangelical faith, it, it's breaking for a lot of people in their 40s and early 50s. What, what, why did you choose to end the book that way? Yeah, I think you're right that the moment has probably passed. Yeah. Um, and you're absolutely right that it's people in the 80s who were formed by 80s and 90s evangelicalism who are now reaching their late 30s into their 40s it's not clear that my college students know what deconstruction is or, or care a whole lot. Yeah. Um, so, which I think is interesting sociologically. So why, why even bring it up then? Um, in part because I am that age and because I do have people that I know who have been through something like that sort of process. And because I think that might've been me mm-hmm. in a different type of context. For I sure. think I, there's a, a way in which I, I have always felt, I mean, certainly with a decade ago, with all the people who were touting the value of doubt in ways that are very similar to the deconstructionists, I've always thought that in a different context, I could have ended up becoming a post-evangelical who thought there were no real norms and we just needed to throw Christianity overboard. I think I was spared that by receiving an education that was really, really profound. Um, but I, I wanted those who are inclined to deconstruct to hear that I, I think I get it a little bit, but that there are other ways to approach the faith and to approach problems in our religious communities that don't involve deconstructing. Um, I don't even like the metaphor. I don't think it's the right way in to frame our intellectual lives. It's not clear to me that what people are destruct- deconstructing is anything like Christianity, for one. But even if it is like Christianity that they're deconstructing, um, we don't, I don't think we should relate to our belief systems in those sorts of architectural ways, right? Where, where what I'm doing is tearing down and then I'm going to rebuild. That seems too systematic, too programmatic. I think, you know, it's much more, it's a much more healthy disposition to, to want to understand what one has received because I think understanding is a posture that requires one to still see goods and affirm the goods in as much as one can. Um, whereas deconstructing is just, it presupposes that it needs to go, whatever you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And so understanding seems to be, in one respect, to be a more ambivalent stance towards churches that have hurt us, religious communities that have hurt us. Because we can really name ways in which they have hurt us, ways in which they have deformed us. But if we understand, we can also see how our ability to assess the bads 
is in part derived from the goods that they gave us. Yeah. And this is what I want to ask all the people who are deconstructing. Where did you learn the intellectual skills that you now have to deconstruct? Who paid for your college? Who lets you do that? Right. In a lot of cases, it's going to be evangelical parents who supported um, students going, their children going off to evangelical colleges in the 80s, that the 2000s have been the high point for explicitly Christian higher education in American history. We've mm -hmm. had more explicitly Christian colleges, more students going through them than ever before. And someone funded all that. And it was mostly parents that wrote those checks. And that seems like itself, it should make our stance towards the faith that we've received ambivalent rather than one where we would have a posture of deconstruction. So yeah, on the one hand, I want to say, I kind of get it. On the other hand, I want to say there's a more, it seems like there's a more healthy and happy psychological disposition to have towards our past than the metaphor of deconstructing allows. Yeah. Well, with that, Matt, I, I really do appreciate the the work, uh, the investment you put into writing the book. Deeply uh, biblical, deeply theological. Um, I really do think it could be used in a, in a lot of different segments of of life here. Um, and so, thank you for your time. Thank you for your answers. It's been a delight to have you. Thanks, Dan. I've really enjoyed this. Matthew Lee Anderson is the recent author of his third book, Called Into Questions. Cultivating the Love of Learning Within the Life of Faith. Available everywhere now at your favorite bookseller. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.